You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, go to sojournmontrose.com. For the weekend, we are in the middle uh, of a sermon series entitled Sinners and Saints, in which we are walking through uh, the book of Romans. And um, we are in a portion of the book where really Paul is building one, one big argument. So all three chapters um, that, that, that sort of begin this letter for us are very, very cohesive and are all very interrelated. And, and what Paul is really building a case for um, is, is our need, that there is, something, that there is something that we need that we can't provide for ourselves, no matter what your background is, no matter what your uh, socioeconomic status is, no matter, uh, no matter what your uh, racial identity is, that none of those things um, are adequate and that somehow there is something in us that is uh, that denotes or that describes for us our our lack, our need for something, um, and he's really addressing two disparate groups of people. Which, um, if you've been around, um, you've heard this kind of every week. But it's it's so important for us to be able to understand um, where we go with this text. But so he's talking to really two different groups of people: a church in Rome, in which there are both Gentiles and Jews, and the Gentiles traditionally had been people with whom the Jews would not associate. Because the Jews throughout their history had been told that they were set apart, that they were special, that they were the people of God, the people to whom God revealed himself and through whom he would reveal himself to the world. And so the Jewish people, you hear that enough times and you start to think a little bit highly of yourself. And so over the centuries, there's just been a greater divide from those within the Jewish nation and those without. And what Paul is doing and what Paul is uh, attempting to do, really, is bring them all to the same level, bring them all to a common ground, because what Paul understands is that because of the gospel, because of the good news of what Jesus has done, that any barrier that we could conceive of is really brought, brought low. Um, that we all stand on level footing in terms of our need, in terms of our need. Um, and so uh, during this argument um, that, that Paul is sort of crafting where he's, he's touching uh, on, on really sore points for both sides, um, he is going to uh, craft his argument today in such a way that really illustrates his knowledge of, of both of those cultures, and he's going to address their respective questions and their lines of thinking. And so I love the way Paul argues because it's much like it's much like the way I think. So what he's going to do is he's going to present something and then he's going to say, now that might lead us to this question or conclusion. And then he's going to break that down and he's going to say, and that might lead to this. And so I'm kind of a, a rabbit trail guy uh, and so is Paul. And so this is, uh, this is going to be a fun one for us. It is a difficult portion of text um, really to, to interpret. And so bear with me. I'm going to try to keep it um, short, but also good um, and, and faithful in terms of its uh, exposition. So um, our sermon this morning is titled The Righteousness of God. And there, uh, just like every week, if you take notes, there's, there's three points. And the first point is the righteousness of God in salvation, or you can just write in salvation. The second point is the righteousness of God in judgment. And then the third point is a failed objection. And so we're going to start off with Within salvation. Now, if you were here last week, what, what we what we read um, in chapter two was this idea, really, that um, that the Jews, um, in in and of themselves, in terms of just possessing a law, possessing this knowledge about God that had been given specifically to them in the Old Testament and all the prophets and all, really everything that you read before Matthew, 
Um, that, that in simply possessing that, in simply possessing a cultural marker that would distinguish them from other people, um, that that was not enough to save them. That they couldn't only be hearers of the law, that they couldn't just read and consume the word of God, but they had to do it also. That that was something that, that, that their lives had to be characterized by in their, in their action as well. And, and part of the text that we didn't read goes on to explain uh, that in light of the idea of circumcision that was a physical outward sign of the Jewish nation that yet um, meant nothing if you were not a, a doer of the word um, also, And so if Paul were writing that today, what he might have said, what he might have mentioned to us is, is something like, like church membership or like baptism. He would say, look, you can have church membership, you can, ha- you can have been baptized, and yet if you are not a doer of the word also, if you don't follow Jesus with your life, if your life doesn't reflect a life that has been changed by the gospel, um, then maybe, just maybe, you're not saved. And so many, so many people, particularly here in the South, if you're familiar at all sort of with this culture versus kind of the way things happen up North, we have a culture, a, a Christian culture, in which many of us have placed at, at, at some point in time our confidence in the fact that maybe we've been baptized in the past or, or joined a church or maybe we walked down an aisle one time. And I'm not negating that experience, but what I am saying is that um, if it hasn't led to a continued change, if our sanctification, our growing in the likeness of Jesus Christ has not come along with that, then we have some serious questions to ask ourselves. That's what Paul is, is saying to the Jews here. And so this section, this, this first eight verses of chapter 3, is really following that, um, that warning from Paul um, in, a, in a very sequential way. So this is the sort of the following question. He says, look, just because you have this cultural distinction, just because you have been raised with the law of God, um, you, you, you still need a savior. You're still in need of, of becoming a, a doer of the law. You need to, and you, and you can't possibly do it. And so the question then is this, verse one, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Okay, so if being Jewish does not save them, if circumcision is no guarantee, then what's the advantage? That's, that's the question, the rhetorical question that Paul is asking to his readers. And we would expect Paul, after sort of railing on the Jews for, for a whole chapter, to say that there's no advantage. But here's what he says, verse 2. Much in every way. So, so what advantage has the Jew? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? So the greatest of Jewish distinctions is the fact that God spoke to them and entered into a covenant with them by those words. And so I think what we can take now and begin to understand now is that there is no greater advantage for anyone than to be within the earshot of the Word of God. There's no greater advantage for, for any of us than to, be, to sit at the feet of the Word of God and to be, um, to be drawn in by it, to be rebuked by it, to be formed by it, to be shaped by it. And so now, being entrusted with the stewardship of God's revelation for the Jews, that's, that's what's happened for them, 
But Israel's rebellion has found them utterly helpless and hopeless. They've defaulted on their end of the covenant, right? So God says, I'm going to reveal myself to you, and you're going to be my people. And it's through you that I'm actually going to make myself known. It's in, it's in the way that you conduct yourselves. It's in the way that you love one another. It's in the way that you love and worship me that I am going to make myself known. And that's kind of the, the relationship that he has sought to establish. And yet, throughout the entire Old Testament, we see that uh, they failed fairly miserably at doing that, at being the people of God. But here is what Paul says. What if some were unfaithful? We know that they were unfaithful. If you've read anything before the book of Matthew, you know this. If you've experienced really even anything in your lifetime, you know that um, to some degree there has been a faithlessness. But he says this, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And his answer to that in verse 4 is, by no means. So Paul tells us that although they have been faithless, and that although all of us, to some degree, have been faithless, that we cannot nullify the faithfulness of God. Paul tells us that the faithfulness of God is actually revealed in his commitment to carry out the covenant in spite of, of our faithlessness. He made a promise to the people of Israel and consequently to the church that we would be his people and that he would be our God for the sake of his name. So he is and he will be faithful to save and his salvation is a manifestation of his righteousness, right? So righteousness meaning that he is upright, meaning that he is true, not in, the, in just the sense of being honest, but that in everything that he, is, he does, he has the moral uh, and, and, and uprightness um, that we don't have. He is, he's consistent, ever consistent. He's constant in his ways. And what he says comes to be. When the Lord decrees something, it, it happens. And that's really what all of the Old Testament is about, is about the, the faithlessness of man and the faithfulness of God. And so if, if you're a Christian in the room this morning, this should be like a warm blanket for your soul. We can know and be confident that through Jesus and the power of the Spirit, we will join God in his court as co-heirs with Christ a people set apart to worship the Lord with gladness and in purity for eternity. And God is righteous in his salvation. So here's the thing. Uh, if, if we were to go purely by, um, by the law, we would see that our, our failure, for God to be righteous, he would judge our failure with what, it, with what it deserved, which is wrath. And yet God promised salvation. And so his righteousness is is placed on that promise that in spite of our faithlessness, he would be faithful. So God is righteous in his salvation of people. God is righteous in judgment. When the Old Testament speaks of God being true, it usually means not that he is honest, but that he is reliable or trustworthy, true to his word. And in God's word, he promises not only salvation, but he promises Judgment. And so verses 4 through 6 say this, and actually I'll take sort of half of verse 3. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? 
I speak in a human way. And so here's the, again, so this is kind of how, how Paul is doing it. He's going to ask a question. He's going to kind of explain why that's a, 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 a wrong or correct thinking. And then he's going to ask another question. So his, the, the, the following question really um, of this sort of um, inner, inner dialogue that he's having with, um, with the Jews is this. If our unrighteousness is what allows or shows God to be righteous, can he really judge us? I mean, it's a good question, right? Like if it's through my unrighteousness, if it's through my evil deeds that God has proven to be righteous, how can, how can he judge me? And what he's going to do uh, is explain to us and, and really argue for this idea that God is no, not only righteous, but justified in his judgment. So what he does is he takes a, a portion of Scripture, he quotes from Psalm 51, and I'm just going to read that really quick. Psalm 51, for those of you that don't know, is written by um, King David, and it's, it's written almost immediately after he has his encounter with Bathsheba, in which he uh, commits adultery. And it's, and it's this beautiful psalm. I mean, it's, a, it's amazing um, to, to see David's understanding of grace, even without, without being sort of uh, apprised to um, the gospel of, of Jesus. Um, but this is just such great, great foreshadowing and shows a great understanding of, uh, of David's sober assessment of, of who he is um, and where he sees himself in light of God's holiness. And so he says this. I'm just going to read the first um, four verses. It says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And so here's, here, here's what David is saying. He's saying, he's acknowledging his guilt before God, right? He's saying, it's my sin, it's my transgression, it's my iniquity. And he acknowledges this guilt before God in order that God's justice will be clear. So essentially what he's saying to his reader is he's saying, look, when God judges me, it's fair. It's right. It's my sin. It's my iniquity. And so what I'm going to do is not look for a way to crawl out of this hole on my own. I'm going to say, you know what, God, you're the only one that can wash me. And if you don't, I will experience your judgment. And it will be just. It will be righteous. And so here's the thing. We have to understand a couple of things. Uh, we need to understand really the, the difference between judgment and consequences, because I think we confuse those a lot. And then I, I want us to really come to an understanding of what is, it, what is this judgment um, that Paul is actually talking about. And so there's a difference between uh, judgment and consequences. If you, uh, if you go out and and drive under the influence of alcohol, and you hit someone, and, and it, you know, God forbid, it takes that person's life. That's not, that's not God judging you. That's a consequence for your sinful action, right? Like, that, that happens. Like, if you're, if you're promiscuous, and you get pregnant, that's not God judging you. It's a consequence of your action, 
And there's a difference between those things. If you're, uh, so here's what we need to understand. A lot of times, as Christians, or the Christian church has preached this idea that, um, that consequences are really God's, God's judgment on your life. That God, like God is like, oh, you drove drunk. I'm going to make you crash into this car. Or, oh, you, like, you had a lot of sex. I'm going to make you pregnant. No, like that's just, that's the laws of nature. Like that's what happens. That is, that is a consequence for your action. That is not God's judgment on you. And so um, as Christians, we need to kind of understand that in the way we speak to other people and understand that like e- even when bad things happen to us, oftentimes it's a consequence. It's not God's judgment on you. God's judgment on us is far more terrifying than that. And we'll see that um, shortly. And if you're not a Christian, what, what, what you need to do really is, is, is take responsibility in those moments and quit looking for other people to blame for consequences. Because a lot of us, a lot of us, we tend to look at God when bad things happen to us and we say, it's your fault. How could you ever allow this to happen to me? When the truth is really, <laughs> I mean, if I'm just saying if I were God, which would be a really bad thing, um, <laughs> if I were God, I would look down and just be like, no, it's, it wasn't, it's not me. It's just that you're dumb. Like, when this happens, this happens. Like, it's not like you didn't know that. It's not like there's no forewarning about that. It's not like, you know, it's just silly. That's, that's what the creation, that's what the word and our hearts all testify to. That's what Romans 1 and 2 tell us about. That, our, that, that, the, that the creation of God shows us that there's a natural order, shows us that there's a way that things work. That's what the word testifies to. That's what our hearts, our conscience tells us in those moments. Hey, I probably shouldn't do this because there's going to be a consequence. And yet, consequences and judgment are not the same thing. God's true judgment, the judgment that Paul is speaking about in Romans chapter 3, is that after your final breath, because of your denial of him in word and deed, you will experience his presence without a mediator meaning the wrath that that Jesus swallowed up on behalf of those who would call him as their Savior, that that, that wrath, the wrath of God, um, will will be borne upon you. That you will stand in the court of God without Jesus, the only capable defense attorney, on your own. And this sounds harsh and insensitive and fundamentalist and bigoted and narrow-minded, whatever you want to call me, but it's true. God has promised to judge all of us, whether you're a believer or not a believer. And the only difference in that equation is that if you're a believer, you're going to be judged not according to your works, but according to the works of Christ in you, which is the good news of the gospel. The good news is that he's given Jesus as a mediator to those who would call on his name. His grace and the faith to believe in his grace is a gift, not something that we can have or that we can earn. And so the third point, a failed objection. Again, he's making, continuing this argument. And in verse 6, he, he, he answers that question that, that God is absolutely righteous to judge us when he says, by no means, for then how could God judge the world? And in verse 7 he says this, but if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? 
as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So here's the thing. We are always trying to put God in our debt. Even in the unfettered grace of God towards us in Christ Jesus, we try to make it about us. Here's the the follow-up question to Paul's assertion that both salvation and judgment are a product of God's prodigious goodness towards us. The question is this, if, and this is a rhetorical question, again, that Paul is going to answer. If in my lie, if in my sin, God's truth or perfection is revealed for his glory, then why am I going to be condemned? If God is ultimately getting glory in my sin, am I not actually serving him? Why not do evil so that good may come? You see, this is, this is telling about the way that all of us, at one point or another, have related to the grace of Jesus. We're always looking to get our way. We're always looking to do what we want to do, and we'll search for any possible way of justifying our selfish behavior. And that's what's happening here. Essentially, he's asking the question, how can I do what I want to do and still achieve the ends I want to achieve? Paul will never entertain this idea that the ends justify the means. See, what what Paul is leading us to the understanding of is that we cannot have, we cannot have Jesus as Savior and not as Lord. Meaning we can't enjoy his salvation, we can't enjoy his favor, his love, his inheritance without submitting to his lordship over our life. He is our king. He is good, gracious, and merciful. And his ways are just and his commands are good. You see, he secured your salvation and it is only logical, loving, and rational that he should then receive your allegiance. We are saved by grace and yet called to good works. What Paul is essentially arguing is that there is no way There is no way to have a faith. There is no way to know Jesus. There is no way to be invited into the kingdom, adopted into the family of God without a response. Like that doesn't happen to you and then your life just stays the same. It's impossible. It is completely and totally impossible. And so it is a failed objection. It is a failed uh, line of thinking that says, if God is going to be glorified through my sin, maybe I should sin more. And he's going to go and talk through that in greater depth in Romans chapter 6 and even uh, chapters 9 through 11. So I'm not going to exhaust all of that right now. But ultimately, what this means for us is that God's righteousness is displayed to us both in his salvation and in his judgment. And that it's only through Jesus that we are allowed into that relationship, that we stand before the court of God with the the proper defense, the only defense. So in in conclusion, what we have to understand is that um, God's wrath, which is really what Paul is talking about all throughout chapters 1 through 3, he's talking about, he's building a case for, he he is the lawyer on the other side of the courtroom saying, This is why you are accused. This is why you stand guilty. This is why it is righteous for God the judge to pour out his wrath on you. 
And yet God's wrath is not a manifestation of a lack of righteousness. So it's not like, it's not like God is just losing his temper. He's like, oh, this is, this is all wrong. It just kind of bothers me. I just don't like it. But that it's like according to the law, like according to the way the world works, you are wrong and you deserve judgment. And so it's not a lack of righteousness. Rather, it is a manifestation of the fullness of his righteousness, that God is right in his love for us and he is right in his wrath upon us, depending on whom we call as Savior. And so whether believer or unbeliever, we must recognize that we cannot consume parts of who Jesus is. If we do not accept him as Lord, we cannot accept him as Savior. His work is complete and his rule is good. Everyone is going to face the judgment of God. We will either face it on our own or we will face it with God's appointed defense attorney, his own son, Jesus Christ. So here's what I would ask. And I think this goes for the the believer and for the unbeliever in the room. So whatever whatever side of that spectrum you fall on, you should know by now that it, this is an okay place for, for that to be true of you, either way. Um, we, we just want to get to know you. We, we do hold this to be true, and yet that doesn't exempt us from loving you. But for once, can we stop rationalizing our sin? In true repentance, both, the, both of the unbeliever and the unbeliever, there is no rationalization. There's no attempt to minimize guilt. There's no attempt at self-justification, which is our tendency. Right? When you look at the repentance of David in his psalm, do you see him saying, yeah, um, I sinned, but Bathsheba was really hot. And so it's her fault. Or does he say, God, I can't believe you made me this way with these kinds of desires. It's your fault. Or does he look around and say, man, I, I just if I hadn't been king, if I didn't have all these things and, and was able to woo this kind of woman, then I never would have done this. He doesn't do that. He says, they are my transgressions. It's my sin. It's my guilt. I have sinned against you and you alone. And yet, he knows that at the feet of the Father, there is grace, grace abundant, to wash white as snow, to blot out our sin. And that's why he goes there in the fullness of his repentance, knowing that his faith will be rewarded with grace. So here's here's what I would say. Brothers and sisters, believer or unbeliever, let's repent. Some of us maybe for the first time. And seek the favor and the kindness of God given to us in Jesus Christ. Let's turn to him for mercy and the power of the Spirit to live a life that is actually changed by the gospel. A life lived under the generous rule and reign of God who is righteous in all of his ways. In all of his ways. In love and in wrath. In salvation and in judgment. Let's pray.